I'm John Oak Dalton, and I'm a screenwriter and director of B-Movies. From Civic Spark Media and the Western Wayne News in Wayne County, Indiana, I'm Kate Jetmore. As a native of Richmond, Indiana, I'm excited to be sitting down with some of our neighbors and listening to the stories that define our community. My guest today is John Oak Dalton. In 1999, Dalton sold his first screenplay to the direct-to-DVD market and sold more than 40 screenplays over the next 20 years. In 2018, Dalton directed The Girl in the Crawl Space, a feature film of his own writing. He continues to direct and to write screenplays for other directors in the B-movie genre. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for sitting down with me today. Oh, thank you so much, Kate. It's a pleasure. Listen, as always, I did a little research before we connected today, and I turned up a little gem. It turns out that you and I were both extras in the movie Hoosiers. So a little trivia for you and a little trivia for our listeners. I I have never been asked anything about Hoosiers ever, and I've never met anyone <laughs> who actually also is in Hoosiers. So what scene were you in, and how did you get there? Uh, well, this was, I, I must have been a sophomore, I think a freshman or sophomore at RHS, Richmond High School, and our drama club piled onto buses, you know, with our best, uh, our best iteration of 50s clothing. And we piled onto a couple of buses and drove to Knightstown. And I don't remember specific scenes. All I remember is that they were basketball games. And we were crowd members in the basketball games. So how about you? I was a freshman at Ball State University and also went to Knightstown. I was there for three days. And the scene that I was there for is when Dennis Hopper comes in drunk and embarrasses his son at the game. They're playing the Verdi Hornets. And I'm in the okay. Verdi Hornets cheer block on the other side of the. Uh, so yeah, it, uh, it's a really memorable thing, and it uh, it is yeah. a funny little bit of trivia. It is, and it's such a small world. I I mean I have to ask, given why we're talking today, if that was the moment when you got bit by the film and TV bug. Oh gosh, uh, really? I started as a young kid and um my brother and i made super eight films um i had a friend that had an early video camera we made movies with that i wrote plays i was involved with radio drama i like to draw comic books i mean i was into every aspect and by the time i got to college i was actually um, um, majoring in telecommunications at ball state university at the time Uh, with a film emphasis and um, was also working in television at uh, Channel 49, which is where the Bob Ross show was made, WIPB. So it was a long time love and it's just, uh, uh, I just nurtured it in some form, really my whole, my whole uh, thinking life, really. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you had some very clear goals and we're taking some very practical steps toward those goals. I have to ask, because you mentioned Muncie, you mentioned Ball State, you mentioned TV. Any David Letterman connection in there? Actually, I won a David Letterman scholarship in 1987, which was one of the first years of the of the David Letterman scholarship. I was the first person that ever won one with a screenplay, um, which I think is pretty common now. But I actually typed mine on a typewriter, an electric typewriter. 
and um, back in those days, and I finished it the day that it was due. I kind of pulled an all-nighter. <laughs> so it was kind of a funny... Um, so I, I kind of blazed a trail there in that that was the first... It was the first script or screenplay to win a David Letterman scholarship. And back in 1987, you know, um, there were still a lot of faculty around that had been there when David Letterman was there. And his mother came to the uh, award ceremony and his lawyer was there. And I mean, back then, David Letterman would just write you a check. And it wasn't, you know, there wasn't the kind of the things that there are today. And you also got tickets to the show. And oh, wow. yeah, and. Um, my wife and I went in the spring of 1988, and to kind of give you a frame of reference, Isaiah Thomas of the Detroit Pistons was on there. They just won the uh, NBA championship, and Chris Elliott popped out of a hatch in the floor, and Larry Bud Melman was on there, and um, I think that the musical guest was Terrence Trent Darby, which that, wow. that that's a throwback. That is a blast from but, the past. Yeah. So back then... Um, uh, one of the faculty would just give you the phone number of uh, David Letterman's assistant. You would just call and ask for... T- I mean, they would never do any of these things today, but that's how it was right. back in 1987. Wow. So you're, it sounds like your focus at the beginning and for many years was exclusively or mainly writing. Did you also have directing in the back of your head at that point? Yeah, it was just difficult to articulate it when I was younger. Um Technology has changed so much that there wasn't really entry points. I didn't feel like at the time, um, you know, I learned when I worked in television later that we really held the keys to the kingdom, but that's really changed a lot with, um, obviously, obviously with digital, with streaming. I mean, it's become a lot more democratic than it was when I was coming up through the ranks. So um, there's a lot more entry points than there used to be. So I think it was a kind of a dream, but I, I really didn't know how to articulate it as a young person. Mm-hmm. Say more about the democratization of uh, the field. Do you think that's been uh, a positive change? I mean, for me, certainly. I, I, do, I do think so, because it allows people to, um, to show things that exist in what is called oftentimes the great flyover country, you know, between LA and New York. And, you know, my films that I've directed for certain, but also some of the ones I've written for other directors, you know, I try to keep that Midwest sensibility. I don't pretend like the movies I directed take place anywhere besides, you know, Indiana, Ohio, kind of the Midwest region. So it allows people to um, to show some different points of view. Uh, and, you know, in the greater scheme of things, it also allows, um, you know, underrepresented or marginalized voices to have a chance to uh, to, to uh, be heard and seen. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, John, I have to admit to not being a huge fan <laughs> of horror movies. And I think that basically boils down to the fact that I don't like feeling scared. Um so I'd love to ask what it is that you love about horror movies, whether it be watching them, writing them, or directing them. It's interesting because I really didn't come up with horror movies. Um, as a young person, I liked a little of everything. But, you know, I was like Japanese rubber monster movies, and I liked, you know, Soviet-era science fiction movies, and I liked kung fu theater, and 
you know, I liked a little bit of everything. And then when I went to college and was studying film, I really got into like French New Wave and Italian neorealism. And so, I, you know, my, uh, you know, my uh, interests were pretty diverse, although I, you know, I saw horror movies, but they weren't my main interest. I think what really happened was there's a lot of entry points for new people in the horror genre. And that was just kind of where I broke in. And I wouldn't say got typecast, but certainly was offered more and more horror films, although I've done some other things as well. But um, it's been a good space because you find out really quickly that horror fans are very loyal and they'll follow you to the ends of the earth and they'll be your fans forever. Um, I think the caveat being if you decide to try to get into horror because um, there's an easy on-ramp um, and you know, you're know you cynical about it and you'll decide, well, I want to make Schindler's List Part 2, but I can't do that right now, so I'm going to make a bunch of horror movies just to make some money. The fans will smell a rat and they will call yeah, and they will definitely call you out on it. So, uh, but if you're a true fan, if you're doing it for the right reasons, if you're doing it um, to entertain people, um, if you're articulate in the genre, which I have become over the years, um, then they're then they'll be there for you for life, and that's um, that's been really enjoyable to go to the on the convention circuit and meet people and um, that they know your work or they want to talk to you. It's neat. Well, that was actually going to be my next question. I'd love to hear more, if you're willing to share, about what your relationship is like with your fans. Because the way you're talking about them sounds like, you know, this is not an abstract thing. This is not a group of people who you've imagined sitting in a dark movie theater watching your movies. It sounds like these are people that you have met and know. Yeah, I think... Um, I sold my first, as you indicated, I sold my first screenplay in 1999 and I've always had a pretty open internet presence. I kept a blog for many, many years back when blogging was a big thing. And, you know, I'm active on Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter. And so I think I'm easy to find and, um, I am receptive when people want to write to me. Um, I've also been doing it for a long time now, so... Um, I have, you know, a pretty, a pretty big portfolio of, of choices. And some of these have had longevity and some of them, you know, drop into a well and never get heard about again. But uh, yeah, I try to be receptive to fans and, you know, it's a long game. You never know. uh, You never know when someone else uh, is going to get on the rocket and be successful. And, you know, you've been kind to them or, help them Mm -hmm. you know so you just never know i have a a good friend that um i met years and years ago who just started emailing me he was probably in high school or college just trying to figure out how to break in and he and i had an email correspondence for years and now Mm -hmm. he's a um he writes for lifetime he's doing much much better than me that's his job his (laughs) his real job now so you know it's just a long game people people you meet can um can really become successful and it doesn't mm-hmm. hurt to be kind to people i mean i i learned a long time ago from another b-movie friend you really can't um advance other people ahead of yourself there's just not enough bandwidth but you can certainly pull people along with you if you get on the rocket and so 
that's what I try to do. I just try to be open to fans because you just never know um, what might happen to them or, you know, mm-hmm. what opportunities might come out of that. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's that word again, B-movie. I think we all have sort of a sense of what B-movies are, but can you, how would you define what a B-movie is? I think it, you know, the original definition was like an A-list movie was a top of the bill movie in the old fashioned double features and the B film was a lower budgeted type film, often more genre driven. And I, I would say that's probably still a good, uh, a good way to describe it as a B film is a, usually a genre driven film that's low budget um, oftentimes has exploitation elements to uh, kind of drive the narrative. Um, they can also, I take, I think personally, a B film can also take more risks and um, be more experimental, be more challenging uh, because uh, mm. we aren't fettered by um, by Hollywood rules. Mm-hmm. What about budget? Um, you know, when I was introducing you, I mentioned. Uh, the movie that you directed in 2018, The Girl in the Crawl Space. Take that for that movie, for example. What was the budget on that movie? Well, I sci- I, um, I self-financed that film. Um, at that time, I had, uh, I had gone probably a year or two and not really been offered anything I wanted to work on as a writer or anything at all, really. And... I just decided that I would um, write a script for myself that I didn't care what anyone else thought about and I wasn't writing for anyone and um, then I decided that I could probably shoot it myself with my background in television and so on that I would I could shoot it myself and shoot it in my own house use my friends shoot it over a couple weekends you know and I financed it out of my own savings so it was it was a a very very low budget film. My original plan yeah. was to uh, just go to conventions and sell it at a, a card table, like a lot of people do. Um, I was very very lucky that my uh, producer and director of photography had a connection with a distribution company and got them to watch it, and they picked it up. And then all of a sudden, it was in Walmart and Family Video and on every kind of streaming platform. And I, that was very unexpected to me. So. Um, I, I guess the moral of the story is, is you know, make something you want to see and then you know if there's an audience for it. But yeah, I started off very, very low budget. Um, it was easy for me to do that because I relied on friends in my own house and things. And my wife cooked all the meals and so on and so forth. Um, the second movie, when we turned in Girl in the Crawl Space, my second movie, Scarecrow County, basically the distribution company right away was like, okay, what else you guys got? And uh, then uh, my two movies were released in 20. They were shot in 18 and 19 and then released in 20, which appeared to usher in the apocalypse as we, as we saw. Um, my, uh, my first movie... <laughs> it's all your fault? Kind of. Uh, one of the last things I did before COVID hit, in all seriousness, in February of 20, I uh, was working... I, had, I, was at a, I was working for my day job up in Chicago... And I knew that my movie was coming out the day I was driving home in Family Video, which was still open at the time. So I mapped a route from um, Chicago to home 
using a map of all the family video locations on their website so I could stop at eight or ten family videos and go in and say, hey, I'm an Indiana filmmaker. My movie comes out today. Will you please stock it? Most of them already had it, and some of them wanted to take pictures or want me to sign it. But, you know, I, I was I was selling, I was hand-selling my movie, and that was, like, basically, like, the last thing I did before COVID hit. Um, then my oh, second wow. movie came, yeah. And then my second movie came out that October, and so, you know, me and Tom Cruise and everybody else had to wait a couple years to do anything else and then when we came out of covid the distributor called me and they actually financed my third movie so that was i was really grateful for that so um i don't really know what's next that one's come it's called smart house it's coming out in the fall i believe so um yeah that's been the trajectory um you know making a movie just for myself and paying it out of savings to you know them financing my third movie and i hope it keeps going in that direction yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, the as you describe it, it sounds like one project leads to the next, you know, sort of the, the dots get connected. And actually, the word that comes to me is flow. And I wanted to ask you about the word flow, because again, as I was um, Googling you, preparing for this interview, um, I read an interview that you had given uh, well, actually, I don't know if you had given the interview in print or if it was a transcript of a written interview. But in that interview, you were referring to the writing process and how sometimes you sit down and read one of your own screenplays and your reaction is that you don't remember writing what you see on the screen or what you see on the page. And I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about what I would call the flow state where you're sort of channeling the muse or, you know, channeling those voices and pinning them down on the page. What can you share about that? I think that a lot of people think that writing is 100% art, but really there's a lot of craft. I mean, you have to, you know, if you sit in your underwear in the woods waiting for the muse to hit you, you're going to be waiting a long time. But if you sit down and discipline yourself and work every day, I mean, I get up at 5.30 and try to work an hour before work every day. You know, if you don't watch the Colts game and you do some writing or even reading, you know, so you know what's out, or watching other films to know what's up. But, you know, you have to work at There's a craft element. And I think uh-huh. early on... Um, I remember my first screenplay I'd sold, which was a Bigfoot film called Among Us, and it played forever. It was on the Canadian Sci-Fi Network, which is called Space TV. Space TV. It was on Space TV in the middle of the night for years. So I had Canadian people writing me asking about it, you know, for a long time. But when I went out, I went to help on the shoot because, uh, you know, I had worked in television, so I wanted to go out and help. And while I was there. This was, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, which was a really, like today, right now, there's a huge burst in desire for content. And at that time, it was because of the DVD, you know, because DVDs were becoming so big, they they needed content so badly. And Uh while I was out there, the distributor basically reached out and said, can you, could this production company make three more movies next year? And the director turned to me and said, hey, can you write three more scripts this year? And I was like, no, I don't think I can write three scripts in a year. So I did two rewrites and wrote a third from scratch. But, you know, now, 20 years later, you know, I've 
twice I've written three screenplays in six or eight weeks. I wrote two screenplays in June this year for a British company. So, um, you know, part of it is you get up to speed. Um, part of it is sometimes, you know, the requirements that you write at a feverish pace. Um, I sort of, I don't do things like a lot of writers do. I don't, I don't write outlines. I don't write scene breakdowns on and index cards. I like to, if I can kind of get in my mind who the characters are and then something I'm interested in talking about, you know, or something I want to explore and research and then turn it to a movie, that's what I usually do. I don't do a lot of the things that a lot of writers do. But, um, so I'll sit and move furniture around in my mind for a couple of days and then I can just start. But I, there have been a couple of times yeah. I've written at such a feverish pace that I, I really don't quite remember <laughs> what exactly I did. And it, that's a good luxury because if you can put it away and come back later, if you have the time, then sometimes you can look at it with fresh eyes and make another pass at it that makes it better. But a lot of times you don't have that luxury. Right. You, you, you know, when I wrote the two in, in June for this a British company, um, both those films are, are shot now. They're done. <laughs> they haven't come out, but they're both wow. they're both done. And I, in both cases, I wow, took over for fast. yes, they were. In both cases, I had to take over for a writer or a director because something had happened. So um, that was kind. Of, I would normally not work have to work that fast. So it's um, it is funny. Uh, yeah, I I've I've just I've just become because I've spent a lot of hours sitting in at my little desk, you know, in my chair instead of doing other things. Um, I've been able to become pretty disciplined. Mm-hmm. It sure sounds like it. I want to circle back to the elephant in the room that you mentioned earlier, which is COVID. And as everyone on the planet knows, COVID changed everything and the movie industry is no exception. Um, You know, obviously streaming has just exploded. It's available everywhere. And for lots of people, seeing a movie in a movie theater, which used to be the only way we ever saw movies, is something they or I should say we, don't really do all that much anymore. So I'd love to pick your brain about the power of the big screen at a time when everyone has 24-7 access to video on their phones. Well, you know, I grew up in an era, you know, before all of all of this, before even VHS. So um, it's always going to be magical to me. Um I do like to screen my movies if I get an opportunity. And in this case, with my new movie, Smart House, I was able to screen it at a great venue in Iowa City called Film Scene, which is kind of adjacent to University of Iowa. I was invited there. I was invited to screen in Chicago at a venue. And then I kind of had a friends and family screening in Dayton, Ohio, a few weeks ago. So, I mean, you can't can't mirror that experience of seeing any film, not just your own film, in a crowd. But, you know, as a filmmaker, it's helpful because you see what what lays an egg and what works and what people laugh at. Well, also, it sounds like, you know, my question really stemmed from the difference between the big screen and a tiny screen. But what you're saying is also really interesting, which is the difference between watching it alone and watching it with other human beings, watching it in a crowd. Yes. 
it's a collective experience. Uh, that's how it was built. You know, I've had screenings of the same film, and some of them were it, at times it was warmly received, and sometimes it wasn't. And you know, they it can take a collective consciousness as an audience. Um, and you know, you can really get your measure sometimes if you're sitting there with everybody else looking at your work. And um, but I, you know, I still love the experience. I don't get to go as much as I used to. Um, I watch a lot more movies on streaming, but um, it's interesting because I feel like I've been I've been through three kind of waves of content creation, and one. I was not really writing at the time, but I was aware of uh, in the 80s when the mom and pop video store boom came and there was such a hunger for VHS content and many of my contemporary filmmakers, people my age, that's how they broke in was shooting for the direct-to-video market. Then in the early 2000s, which I was a part of this, uh, the demand for content on DVD was explosive. And then just a few years ago, I mean, streaming's been around a while, but, you know, you don't see movies of my level really on places like Netflix and Hulu. And they, and you know, they kind of had the market cornered and I couldn't figure out a way that people, B-movie people, true B-movie or independent film people or micro cinema people, whatever you want to call them, that there was a way for us, for us, there was not an entry ramp for us. But that has really changed because there's a million, uh, there's a million apps now. I mean, I'm on. I mean, every. Uh, okay. I mean, practically every film I've ever worked on is on Tubi, T-U-B-I. And like two years ago, I never even knew there was a Tubi, and now it's one of the biggest streaming uh. platforms. But you know, you look at things like the horror one, Shutter. You know, there's also um, Philo's got a ton of people's content. I mean, you just. There's a film I worked on that I wrote for another person that's on some sort of uh, Roku app. So anyway, there's there's so many places now that now that it's sort of been decentralized. It didn't help that Amazon or it helped us, I should say. You know, Amazon used to pay a lot more pennies on the hour, and they changed their dynamic. And I think that kind of led to more of these apps popping up that are very much in the long, t- what's called the long tail, which basically my entire career is in the long tail, you know, which is the idea that, you know, basically like a million people want to see the new X-Men movie. And maybe there's a couple hundred thousand that love spaghetti Westerns of the late sixties like me. And then as that, as that, you know, and then as that starts to go down, there's a thousand people or a hundred people or 10 people or whatever that are waiting for my new movie. Right. Mm -hmm. But that, when you right, get out in the right. long tail like that, your audiences are very, very loyal. I mean, everybody loves the new X-Men movie, but are they really loyal? Or the new Star Wars? Are they really loyal? Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you, as you start to go down that bell curve and you're way out in the long tail, that's where you find your hardcore fans of anything, you know, whatever you want to say. And, um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, that's where I exist, and that's where a lot of these... Um, that's what a lot of these apps now are catering to. And so it has changed the game for a lot of people. There's a lot more entry points on streaming than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fascinating to hear how your career has developed and unfolded. 
And, you know, especially hearing it sort of in the context of how the world has developed and unfolded and technology has developed and unfolded. So I want to thank you so much for sharing with us today, John. It's been a real pleasure sitting down with you and I want to wish you and your family all the best. Thank you so much. It's been so interesting to be on with you and to kind of talk uh, kind of at this level. Thank you. Thank you, John. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to the Western Wayne News Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review our show as it helps more listeners like you to find these stories. For more information, visit our website at westernwaynews.com. I'm Kate Jetmore, and I'll see you next time.